So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are here with our follow-up to Netflix's Ratchet Session. As we mentioned last time, Ratchet serves as the prequel to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and today, we're discussing the classic One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What can you tell me about why you've been sent over here? They think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. Do I look like that kind of guy to you, Doc? Do you want to say something to the group, Mr. McMurphy? Not a thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. That nurse, man. Sit down! He's dangerous. Hey, what the hell is going on here? How about it, you creep, you lunatics? You think you're crazy or something? Well, you're not. <laughs> you're not. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is based on Ken Kesey's 1962 novel of the same name. The 1975 movie stars Jack Nicholson as Randall McMurphy, who is a new patient at a psychiatric hospital. He's transferred to the hospital after serving a few months on a prison farm, which is a real thing, apparently, on charges of assault and statutory rape. He's transferred to the hospital to undergo a psychiatric evaluation as they try to determine if he's attempting to avoid said labor on the farm or is diagnosed with a mental illness. McMurphy and head nurse Mildred Ratchet, played by Louise Fletcher, which we talked a lot about last session, they engage in a power struggle as McMurphy is more rebellious and pushes the boundaries set on the ward by Nurse Ratchet. And actually, this film won all five major Academy Awards, so Best Picture, Actor in a Leading Role, Actress in a Lead Role, Director, and Screenplay the year that it came out. Um, and it was only the second film to do this, and the next film after it was Silence of the Lambs in 1991. So definitely, we're hit, having some heavy hitters on the podcast, <laughs> so check out our Silence of the Lambs episode if you haven't already. Yes, and we're so excited to have One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on the couch today, especially, as Dr. Fran mentioned, it was released in 1975, and not only that, but it was released on November 19th. So today is actually the 45th anniversary of its release. So what a fun and exciting way to celebrate. <laughs> and it was totally planned in advance that we were going to release this episode on this date. It was not an accident at all. <laughs> we totally <laughs> planned it out ahead of time. We are very thoughtful in all regards. <laughs> 
And so as a few episodes ago, we've talked about kind of in this spooky session series, psychiatric inpatient hospitals have come up a lot, and we've been really saving that conversation for today's session. So as promised, we want to talk about psychiatric inpatient hospitalization, particularly as it's portrayed in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Dr. Sam did some really interesting research on actually the filming of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in this context. Yeah, so I'm just going to start abbreviating it as One Flew Over because the name in itself is like a tongue twister to me. So One Flew Over was filmed almost entirely on location at the Oregon State Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital facility in Salem, Oregon. Um, And one of the cool things is that the director of the hospital at the time, Dean Brooks, made it a condition of filming that the patients and staff be included in the process. And so there are hospital patients and staff that did participate in the filming of this movie um and dean brooks had made the comment in an interview he gave at the time that he felt the therapeutic and financial advantages for those patients who got to work on the movie whether they were actors technicians maintenance people would outweigh any disadvantages um so you can see in the film many of the patients and staff that had some bit parts. And interestingly, even Brooks had his moment in the spotlight, or 15 minutes of fame, if you will, as he played the hospital administrator, Dr. Spivy, that we see in the movie. That actually is the real hospital administrator, Dean Brooks. I thought this was super interesting to learn um, that there were some patients and staff that ended up being part of the film. I think that's such a cool thing, especially for the time. Um, obviously, some of the main characters went on to be pretty world-renowned actors like Jack Nicholson, Danny DeVito, which I did not realize was in this movie until <laughs> no. Dr. Sam told me <laughs> right before we recorded, and Christopher Lloyd. So um, yeah, just really interesting. And I think it makes sense. This portrayal of a psychiatric inpatient hospital seems a lot more realistic because it's actually taking place in a actual psychiatric inpatient facility versus Ratchet, which we talked, you know, ad nauseum about how just unrealistic and lavish that setting was. Exactly. I think we see this much more realistic because it is a real hospital. Um, and we see like, you know, more of we've had Dr. Adam and um, Dr. Weber on previously to speak about what forensic hospitals or inpatient psychiatric hospitals look like. And they talked more about things that look like this. So like the recreational spaces, the common shared spaces where we see them playing cards, hanging out, doing social activities. Um, we see more of like the rooms and nurses station, doctor's office. Um, I think much more in line with what you would expect to especially for the time. I think also interestingly for the time, the Oregon State Hospital did become kind of famous, you know, for its role in the movie because this was such a big movie at the time. Um, However, unfortunately, it also gained notoriety, so to speak, for other more um, not positive issues. So overcrowding, reports of staff abuse to patients and other conflicts. So this hospital did close and they started construction of a new hospital facility in the area in 2009. Um, But what's kind of neat is now they have the Oregon State Hospital Museum of Mental Health, where they have preserved some of the old rooms from this hospital um, and converted it into a nonprofit museum where you can go and learn a lot about the history of mental health. So that's kind of cool. That's cool. Maybe we'll take a road trip at some point. (laughs) Yes, definitely. And we will put a link to the website for that museum on our resource page um, as well if you want to check it out. Yeah. And so I think a big theme that comes up when we talk about psychiatric inpatient facilities and we see this come up in the movie is the difference between individuals who are there voluntarily versus others who have been committed. Um, And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time discussing the differences between those and kind of some other ethical concerns that might come up with that. So involuntary civil commitment in the United States is a legal intervention. So someone 
like a judge or someone else acting in a judicial capacity can order that a person with symptoms of a serious mental disorder and meeting other specific criteria, usually dangerousness is a big piece of this, be confined in an inpatient hospital um, or have some kind of outpatient treatment for a period of time. Yeah, and this differs from those who are voluntarily um, admitted to a hospital like this. So oftentimes if someone is involuntarily committed, there will be stipulations upon which um, the individual has to meet or certain criteria that will determine when they can be released or discharged. If you are um, otherwise voluntarily, you know, enter the hospital for treatment and care, you're then allowed to kind of leave when you feel ready and willing because you're there on your own accord. Um, And we do see this theme kind of play out in the movie. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we discuss McMurphy's character a bit too. Yeah, and so we also thought we would give a little bit of a background on the history of inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. Um, You know, we cannot spend... I mean, I guess we could spend hours and hours talking about this, but we don't think our listeners will enjoy it too much. So we'll try to condense (laughs) it and just focus on a few brief pieces and then put a lot of resources on our website for people who want to learn more about it. Um, But this kind of goes back as early as like the 13th century. Um, English law distinguished between idiots, I'm quoting here, idiots who hath no understanding from their nativity and lunatics who had understanding but hath lost their use of reason. Um, And both of these sets of individuals that were categorized were provided for by the king. Um, And then there were kind of all these different stipulations about kind of lunatics versus idiots. And obviously, we don't use either of those terms anymore. But kind of just interesting to think like how long this is dated back to. And thank goodness we do not use such terms as those. I mean, they're very harsh, very stigmatizing. Um, Now we would consider more people having intellectual disabilities or severe mental illness. Um, And in the 13th century, when this started in England, basically the king kind of took over um, and, as they said, provided for these individuals. And then whether they were um, discharged or kind of as they say, came back to their right mind, they were able, like, the their property, all of the things that the king had kind of taken in were then returned to them, or their heirs, if they were not able to, you know, earn it back, or if they passed away. So, you know, like Dr. Friend mentioned, this is a huge topic. So it does span, as we see, starting as early as what we believe the 13th century in England, um, across many years, various countries, lots of changes, and really, this history is... Um, very dependent on a lot of legislation and legal changes and lawsuits and all of that. So that's why we can't really break it down um, necessarily all today. So we're going to kind of more briefly talk about it in terms of after that 13th century, like what happened in the U.S., Um, initially, like we see in a lot of parts of the world, people with mental illness were cared for by their family, um, which was oftentimes like a high burden or they weren't really able to do so effectively depending on what their family member um, was having difficulties with. So then the first area to make an organized effort to care for the mentally ill was in 1752 in Pennsylvania. So the Quakers in Philadelphia created the Pennsylvania Hospital in Philadelphia. And you know, not the best care, but they were the first to make an organized effort. Um, But they basically provided rooms in the basement of this hospital with shackles attached to the walls where they would house a number of patients and individuals with severe mental illness. Um, However, within a year or two, so many other patients or individuals were having need to be housed in this basement um, that they actually created a whole ward beside the hospital. And eventually a new hospital, the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, um, not a very charming name, was opened in 1856 and remained open really under various names until 1998. Um, So this is the first instance though of like an organized effort having a hospital space um, to care for those with mental illness in the U.S. that we know of. 
And I was reading that there was a lot of controversy and Dr. Sam mentioned like legislature and like different rules about like how to have someone committed. And at the time yes. it was kind of like if a family member had reason to believe or if someone else had reason to believe that this person could benefit, quote, from inpatient hospitalization, then the the hospitals just accepted them and in these like kind of dire conditions. And so over time, they really had to start thinking through like, we can't just commit every person who a family member comes in and says, please take this person. I don't want to care for them or I don't, you know, they're bothering me or something like that. There needs to be more guidelines around what criteria to admit someone versus, you know, having outpatient treatment or, you know, some kind of other intervention. And on the darker side of that, what Dr. Fran is talking about is a lot of hospitals that would take in patients with mental illness, um, a lot of times they would be of wealthy, wealthy families who, you know, didn't want to be burdened or couldn't care for their relatives who would take them to these hospitals and pay large sums of money to have them, you know, being treated for or held in these hospitals. And so hospitals were, you know, kind of incentivized to do that because that money helped them to then, you know, care for other patients who couldn't pay or for physical ailments and things of that nature. Um, so kind of another, you know, more dark aspect of who was being cared for and how things were happening kind of like back um, when these kind of hospitals were originating. Yeah, and as Dr. Sam was alluding to, the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane was one of the first, but it was definitely not the last. And so a bunch of other hospitals started popping up around the country. Um, Virginia, New York, Kentucky had some of the first. By 1890, every state had at least one publicly supported mental hospital. Um, so you can see that this was just growing and really expanding. Um, and, you know, again, if we're thinking about back with like the time of Ratchet or when this movie was coming out where we didn't have great like long-term treatments, the capacity was growing or the number of people being admitted was growing and there probably weren't that many people being discharged because they were healthy Mm -hmm. and, you know, stable. So you're just like having this massive amount of individuals being housed in these state institutions. Yeah, very true. And so that's one of the things that really happened, like from the inception of these hospitals when they were growing, is that the rates of people being admitted, you're right, were also growing. And like, you know, they were building larger and larger facilities to try to house and help people. Um, A lot of these state hospitals, you know, were helping people with severe mental illness. They included therapy, medication, medical treatment. They also had like work and vocational training. They tried to offer a sense of community. Um, The history is really interesting if you're into it because they're, you know, of course, throughout all branches of medicine, like within psychiatry, there are different schools of thought. So there were different... um, individuals that would pop up like with their ideas and you know it really spanned even from the type of buildings that they would make like wanting to have like you know I think one of the creators of certain um, psychiatric institutions had a thought that you know people with mental illness should not be um, left without any luxury or you know quality of life and so they really built these like really beautiful buildings with like a lot of air and open space to like help Uh, provide a healing and therapeutic environment. Um, So really just a lot of different facilities, a lot of different modalities of treatment. Um, And I think we all know the history, like some more of the approaches with like restraints and kind of putting a lot of people in small rooms, not really caring for individuals um, to a shift in what they called moral treatment, which is more of a therapeutic approach that was supposed to emphasize the character and spiritual development. So really asking people to care for these individuals with kindness um, for everyone that came in contact with the patient so that they could like heal and grow and, you know, uh, have that therapeutic um, benefit. So just a lot of really interesting sometimes dark and sad history within like this these institutions um but it really spans a lot a lot of time in all these various um iterations yeah and at its peak in around the 1950s over half a million 
Americans were confined to state hospitals, which is a massive number, um, and many of them for life. Again, like we were saying at the time, luckily now we have a lot more understanding of ways that we can help individuals with severe mental illness to be able to not be confined in a state inpatient hospital and be able to go on to live fairly kind of regular, typical lives. Um, but at the time, a lot of those things didn't exist or we just didn't know enough yeah. about them. Um, today, the number of people in inpatient hospitals is a lot closer to 37,000, so still quite a bit. Um, Um, but much smaller than we were seeing kind of in the mid 50s. And most of these are for shorter term, what we call like acute or, you know, immediate inpatient um, hospitalization. So someone who comes in for a shorter period of time where they're stabilized before being able to be discharged and work on a more outpatient community based um, treatment regimen. And this shift from kind of these longer term inpatient psychiatric hospitals to now what we're seeing, you know, fewer beds, more for those acute settings like Dr. Fran described, was a part of this deinstitutionalization. Um, so this was a government policy that began in the 1960s that moved mental health patients out of these state run, and yes, they were called insane asylums at some points and in some places, um, into more federally funded community mental health centers. Um, so, you know, there were various reasons for this change. Some were, you know, an increase in effective medication. So being able to provide individuals a medication that could help them, like, function outside of a hospital setting, um, alternatives in the community, so other more outpatient-based treatments, reductions in healthcare coverage. So also being able to, you know, really, unfortunately, a big part of this was budget and money. Like, how are we able to house these patients for such a long time? Um, and then also improvements for other treatments, because historically, sometimes patients with things like intellectual disabilities, epilepsy, dementia, um, even patients like that were oftentimes treated or um, admitted to inpatient psychiatric units and hospitals because they didn't know what else to do in order to treat them. I also was reading, you know, that in, in theory sounds great, right? We're moving people more into these <laughs> yeah. community-based treatment settings, people that can be kind of in the um, in the world kind of functioning more typically versus like confined or restricted in mm -hmm. some ways. Um, oftentimes you'll hear us talk about like the least restrictive environment. Um, and so whatever setting someone can be in that they can get the treatment they need, but be the least restrictive possible while still being able to function and not cause harm to others is the ideal. Um, but there are some like controversy about, you know, if these individuals are not being, um, you know, fully treated and taken care of in this really controlled structured environment, what might be the alternative? Um, um, and there are unfortunately a lot of really high rates of individuals with severe mental illness or mental illness in general, like in the prison population, for example. And so we might see that some of the individuals that historically had been in these psychiatric inpatient facilities are maybe being funneled to, um, you know, in, in uh, are incarcerated or, you know, kind of these other populations. So just kind of things to think about that just because these individuals aren't in these facilities anymore, are they still really getting the best care um, are really being treated the most humanely? And some people have different opinions on that. Exactly. Within this field, it's actually highly controversial. There are some people that are really critics of it. Um, I think that at the time when they were shifting more out of the inpatient setting and going to more of the community setting, they thought that they were doing it you know, to try to come up with more humane or less cruel um, treatments. Um, but as Dr. Fran mentioned, there are several people on the side that feel like, well, you know, individuals with severe mental illness still can be found in less than ideal environments because there's nowhere else for them to go, whether it's prison, you know, a homeless population, just various other um, places where they're not really receiving therapy or, or treatments or any benefits. Um, and so some people still argue that this system does need to be improved. And I think Dr. Fran and I 
Not that we're saying we need to go back into these like long-term kind of uh, psychiatric inpatient settings, um, but we definitely agree. There could always be improvements in healthcare, mental health especially, just making sure that services are accessible and can reach people that need it. Um, you know, I think that, of course, factors like for people that criticize this kind of shift that we're talking about, um, if we're going to have these community services, making sure that they are appropriately funded, that there are appropriate amount of providers out there, um, and so that the people that need help can get the help and that the people that are trying to help are equipped to do so. So, you know, always improvements to be made, I think. Yeah, I think you touch on such an important point there. I don't think you'll meet a psychologist who's going to say, oh, we're appropriately funded for mental health in this country. I think we could yeah. always use more funding, especially for individuals who don't have insurance or have poor coverage for mental health services. And so if we're not going to be helping people in the inpatient setting, there needs to be more money and more funding, like Dr. Sam mentioned, to be able to provide those community-based services uh, for those individuals who need them the most. Yeah. And then maybe for those who maybe have more severe mental illness or require more assistance from what is provided in the community, um, I don't know what it looks like, but maybe some form of treatment that's also more appropriate. Um, I read one of the articles that was talking about some of these individuals because of that shift in system is what ends up happening is that they are just continuously admitted on an acute basis. So kind of just like in and out of the hospital, um, you know, which can also be problematic for different reasons if they're not really getting the supports once they leave. And so currently in most states, individuals can be committed on a non-voluntary basis for dangerousness. Um, how that's defined is going to differ a little bit per each state, but generally it's understood to refer to a person's risk for behaving violently, causing injury to themselves or to others. Um, and again, the nuances of that are varying state by state, but that's kind of a general overview of what kind of the current state of how someone can be um, committed involuntarily versus voluntarily. But the majority of mental health services today are provided on a voluntary basis. Um, not that it's rare, but it is not as common that you have an individual who is committed against their will. So before we get too into the weeds on inpatient hospitalization <laughs> in general in our country, let's bring it back to One Flew Over. So in the movie, we see patients socializing, taking medication, participating in group therapy, and we wanted to kind of break down a few of these things that we see in One Flew Over, obviously taking into context the larger picture that we just presented, but also the time frame that the movie takes place, um, but also just like how realistic are some of these things. Yes, and I think it's important to keep in mind, so the movie came out in 1975, but it's based on the book, and I believe the era in which the book was written is in the 60s. Um, so we're talking inpatient um, psychiatric hospitalization during the 60s. One of the things like I noticed right away, and one of the first treatment modalities that we often think about with these hospitals is medication. And so, you know, <laughs> in this movie, Nurse Ratchet gets on several times and announces medication time, and everyone just like lineups and takes their medication. Medication time. Medication time. You know, I have never seen that. I, so, you know, full disclosure, I have not worked full time or spent a lot of time in a psychiatric inpatient like unit or hospital, but I've seen it much when I have been in those settings briefly or I know of colleagues, I've known it to be a little more individualized where they actually have the medication, they take it to the patient. Sometimes also individuals are taking medications at different times, you know, based on what they're taking. Um, but I think that this is something we always see in movies. Line up, everyone get your pill, right? And so I thought that that was like an interesting thing to to talk about or bring up for this movie yeah and there's always the person who is slipping the pills under their tongue and not taking the medication yeah. which 
can happen. That can happen. I've like heard stories about people stockpiling medication or things like that. It's like, it can happen, but it's just like such a common thing we see. Yeah. The lineup and then someone slipping the medication under their tongue and then, um, you know, trying to get away with not taking the medication. Yes. And I think one of the most egregious parts of related to medication, again, Dr. Fran and I are not psychiatrists. We're not going to go like in depth about medication. Um, But one of the things I really had qualms with in this movie is that, you know, once McMurphy arrives, he's explicitly asked um, Nurse Ratchet about his medication. Let's actually like give a quick listen to this scene and then kind of discuss it. Mr. McMurphy, your medication. What's in the horse pill? It's just medicine. It's good for you. Yeah, but I don't like the idea of taking something if I don't know what it is. Don't get upset, Mr. McMurphy. I'm not getting upset, Miss Pilbo. It's just that I don't want anyone to try and slip me salt, Peter. You know what I mean? It's all right, Miss Pilbo. If Mr. McMurphy doesn't want to take his medication orally, I'm sure we can arrange that he can have it some other way. But I don't think you'd like it, Mr. McMurphy. You'd like it, wouldn't you? Well, give it to me. Mm. Very good. Mm, yummy. I think my first thought was like, first of all, he's been there for I don't know how long, not very long. How do they know what medication to give him? They haven't done this full evaluation. They think he might just be feigning so that he can get out of work detail like what are they giving him like if it's anything more than Tylenol it's like very concerning (laughs) very true and you know this will one of the big topics we want to discuss in relation to this is patient rights but I think ultimately even in a psychiatric inpatient setting even if someone is involuntarily committed as a patient they have a right to know what medication they are being prescribed. They have a right to ask questions about this medication. And they do have a right to refuse recommended medications unless there is a legally um, permissible mechanism that's overriding a refusal. So sometimes if a patient is deemed um, to be not stable or not competent to make those decisions or if they are endangering themselves or others, that can be overridden. They can be given medication involuntarily. But in this sense where it's like the recommended medications they're getting in line to take, when Mc- Murphy asked Nurse Ratchet, I don't see the issue with why they're refusing to tell him what it is and then threatening him. Like, there's no, you know, it's not like, okay, you don't want this medication. It's no, we're not going to tell you and we're going to force you to take this regardless. So, you know, just very, um, I think very the opposite of what we would expect or at least hope to expect, you know, because this does violate McMurphy's patient rights. And I think this is a theme that's come up in a few of our different episodes. I'm thinking of Silver Linings Playbook and that it really is on the mental health provider to provide informed consent. And what that means is really explaining this is the medication you're on. This is how it works. This is what it's going to do. This is how it will benefit you. Like, yes, here are the side effects. Here are the things to watch out for. But when an individual is provided with informed information about why they are taking the drugs that they're taking and why they're being prescribed this treatment, they are much more likely to agree because they recognize that it's supposed to be for their benefit, not just shoving pills down their throat for no good reason. Yes. And a lot of times, you know, part of those patient rights, the informed consent Dr. Fran mentioned, you know, is this information and also oftentimes help like allowing individuals to be part of the decision making process, a part of their treatment that in that includes the right to refuse treatment, obviously a little bit different in the inpatient setting, you know, but still McMurphy at the very least should be told what his medication is, what it's for, 
hopefully side effects, even though I know that those are less reported. I do a lot of research on um, patient-provider communication regarding uh, medications. So unfortunately, that is the truth. But at the very least, like, you know, just I thought a very upsetting scene and kind of just adding to the stigmatization of, oh, you're in this hospital and they can just do whatever, give you whatever. Um, And I think one flew over kind of sets that up in a lot of instances, actually, (laughs) that thought. Yeah. Speaking of odd intervention, um, so we've also got the group therapy, which I could not oh, get gosh. over the group there. The, I can't even call it group therapy, honestly. No. Whatever this like group morning meeting. All right, gentlemen, let's begin. Afternoon meetings, like sit around and just talk about your deepest, darkest insecurities and issues while Nurse Ratchet doesn't provide any empathy or support or understanding, but just presses and presses and wants you to talk about these dark things and have the other other patients react to it. At the close of Friday's meeting, we were discussing Mr. Harding's problem concerning his wife. Mr. Harding stated that his wife made him uneasy because she drew stares from men on the street. So, does anyone care to touch on this further? Yeah, it's very odd. And at one point, one of the patients even like uh, very bravely like asked like, well, what is going on? Like, what is this business? And, you know, this is supposed to be therapy. Why, why can't we go on to some new business? Huh? The business of this meeting, Mr. Cheswick, is therapy. And Norris Ratchet even says like, yes, this business is therapy. But I don't really see the therapeutic benefits. They are not learning any skills. Um, They are not, like you mentioned, being provided with any validation. They are not, you know, oftentimes they'll say something that's really distressing or they won't, but Nurse Ratched will reveal their deepest, darkest secrets that she's learned from their file or in some cases, apparently their mother. Um, And then we'll just ask the other gentlemen for reactions to these, like, you know, unsettling details. And um, not surprisingly, we see often in these, quote unquote, group therapy sessions that the the gentlemen aren't really willing to discuss or talk about anything. They seem afraid, honestly. Yeah, definitely pressured to speak about these things. And we even hear, um, you know, them escalate. And it, I think that was another piece where even the oh, first yes. scene, I think we could like listen to a few seconds of it. Yes, let's listen. All right, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? This is the point. This is the point, Tabor. It's not bullshit. I'm not just talking about my wife. I'm talking about my life. I can't seem to get that through to you. I'm not just talking about one person. I'm talking about everybody. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Finally! (laughs) Yeah, Hardy, you're so fucking dumb, I can't believe it. Oh. (laughs) Oh. It makes me feel very peculiar, very peculiar when you throw in something like that. Why? What does that mean? Peculiar. 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 So I agree, Dr. Fran. I think one of the things that was very inconsistent throughout the movie was when they choose to intervene when um, the individuals are escalating. So as we see in this first group therapy session, you know, they're yelling, they're becoming very upset. They're having this like full-blown argument. Some of the individuals are laughing and she doesn't intervene. She doesn't say anything. They don't do anything. And if these are patients in this setting, we are led to believe that they might have severe mental illness or other psychiatric um, conditions where this could be very triggering or unsettling or, you know, lead to aggression or violence. We don't know. Um, And I feel like even later in the movie, 
there's a scene and I, I feel bad I'm forgetting the character's name but he becomes very upset during group therapy because he wants cigarettes and he keeps like standing up and yelling at Nurse Ratchet like give me my cigarettes um, and then she kind of signals to one of the orderlies to come and like make him sit down and then very shortly after they start yelling and getting up and like kind of pushing and stuff over a cigarette and then they do nothing so it's like this gentleman gets like pushed down just for standing up asking for cigarettes um and then when other people are becoming agitated and like yelling and screaming they do nothing so i thought that that was very inconsistent and just overall confusing yeah absolutely and leads to some really problematic issues and we see how you know the individuals are handled and i use that word purposely because they are like physically handled um and that is absolutely not allowed in in inpatient settings in modern day times i'm sure at at the time that this was written and then turned into a movie that things may have been different but there are very explicit rules around how you can interact with patients in a setting like this and the rights that they have um and obviously you know even if things escalate into violence like when i did training in the brief time i worked in a forensic inpatient essentially the I walked away from it being like, okay, so if someone attacks me, I cannot fight back. And that is actually kind of the case in some of these settings because the patient rights are so important that there can't be anything done by the orderlies or by staff at that hospital that is seen to be inflicting harm on that individual, um, even if they are escalating or having violent behavior. So seeing kind of like how the orderlies interact with these individuals like is not okay in the current like state of mental institutions. Definitely not. We see them punch. At one point, one of the men, like, wraps a belt around his hand to, like, get ready to fight. You know, we would not expect, nor would we, you know, feel like it is appropriate in any regard um, to see that kind of violence or almost, like, these, like, physical altercations. Like you mentioned, oftentimes there are um, de-escalation strategies and skills that are taught. And if it gets to the point of, like, a physical escalation, there are certain, like, holds or restraints that individuals are taught to use to help keep the the patient the individual safe um so you know definitely not seeing like this like punching and bleeding and like there were just like some like all-out brawls honestly in this movie that were very unsettling <laughs> yeah for everyone involved very unsettling and we don't see a ton of other treatment honestly we see this quote group therapy we see the medication the only other treatment we really see is ect or elective electroconvulsive therapy. Um, And Dr. Sam, I believe you mentioned in our previous session that you had had some experience with this. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about ECT. Yes, I definitely can. Um, One of the main issues I also had with this portrayal of ECT is, again, these poor individuals are being, you know, given ECT without any explanation or any consent. So it off, it seems like with McMurphy and the other gentlemen, they're like taken into this little room and like strapped down. They don't really know like what to expect. It's not talked over. It doesn't seem like, again, they have like any choice in the matter. Um, and what is really sad is it does seem like ECT in the hospital and one flew over is mostly used as a punishment as opposed to a treatment. Okay, this won't hurt. It'll be over in just a moment. Uh-huh. What's that? Conductor. A little dab will do you. That right, Mr. Jackson? <laughs> Open your mouth. What's that? This will keep you from biting your tongue. Well, now just bite down on uh, it. That's right. Just bite down. Huh? Now bite down okay. on it. Good. <coughs> Are you ready? Understand electric convulsive therapy, it sounds scary. 
it looks scary in movies. It's always like electrodes on the brain and people like being shocked and, you know, shaking. And I do know medical advances have occurred throughout the times. And I, I, you know, I think that the way that they are portrayed in movies more, um, you know, historically, like how this movie is like supposed to be in the 60s, um, could be more accurate for the time. But what we would expect in current modern day ECT is it is actually done under general anesthesia. So, you know, patients are sedated. They don't feel anything. There's no pain. Um, and they do use, uh, they do send small electric currents pass through the brain. So this is used to intentionally trigger a brief seizure. Um, and the mechanism is thought that it will cause changes in the brain chemistry that can help reverse or ease symptoms of certain mental health conditions. So I think most oftenly we see this with um, conditions that are not as, um, they're not responding to treatment. Um, so we can see this sometimes in depression, I think bipolar disorder, things of that nature. Um, so in my brief experience at a pediatric children's hospital, I was actually working with individuals that were diagnosed with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. So this is an autoimmune disease that, um, you know, is related to swelling in the brain and presents often as acute psychosis, or there are a lot of psychiatric-like symptoms. Um, And particularly the individuals I worked with were showing catatonia, which is abnormality of movements and behavior. Um, It can be like repetitive or purposeful overactivity, or it can also be really passive movement. So I was working with some children that were losing like motor capabilities, were unable to walk, unable to talk, unable to eat orally, um, and they were not responding as well to other treatments for their anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis. Um, So they were treated with courses of ECT. And I got to observe this. And as I described, you know, it's in a very sterile hospital setting. An anesthesiologist is present. The patient is sedated. They do the brief current. Um, they have different indicators that they're looking at, including an ECT. Um, and usually it's a course over several weeks, every so days where the patient gets the treatment. Um, and in the cases I was aware of, it actually did um, prove to be effective for helping the patients um, regain their motor abilities and, um, you know, kind of resolve from their um, encephalitis. So it was really an interesting experience. Yeah, that is super interesting. And what I'm hearing is that it's this very standardized procedure that is based in evidence that this has been used to treat individuals that, again, it's not the first line treatment that I know of for any of these mental health conditions, but might be kind of a last line or a later line treatment for individuals who have already tried medication. They've already tried long courses of cognitive behavioral therapy if we're talking depression or so Mm -hmm. some of those things. And ECT is not used for an agitated patient to try to calm them down or um, to try to cure them, you know, after a brawl that happens in the middle of the inpatient hospital. No, definitely would not recommend that it be utilized as a punishment. (laughs) And I think it's such an important point of the way these are portrayed because ECT is still used, but I think there is such a stigma around it um, because of this portrayal and because it does sound really scary to have electrical currents and induce a seizure. Um, But because individuals are given most of this information via movies or TV shows where we see like a horrible, really like excruciating portrayal like in One Flew Over um, that, you know, people are less likely to, you know, believe in those treatments or think they could be helpful or, you know, even if for some individuals they may actually be um, something that could be beneficial. I'm sure. And I'm also sure that probably historically it was a lot scarier. It probably was less standardized. They weren't using anesthesia, you know, so like inducing a seizure while you're lucid. I'm sure that 
was a very scary experience. And so, you know, kind of like what we talked about in Ratchet, unfortunately, some of these treatments that were done um, in a more archaic manner or in a less, you know, um, compassionate manner that did exist are either now like non-existent or have been adapted to be more, um, you know, humane or just advances in medical treatment, like as they have progressed. So... And we've been talking about the different pieces of the inpatient hospitalization and the treatments and haven't talked much yet about one of the main characters. So we can't really get oh, get through One Flew Over <laughs> without talking about Randall Patrick McMurphy, or uh, played by Jack Nicholson. So what are some things yeah. we see with Randall or McMurphy? And I agree. I think, you know, we're really diving into the psychiatric hospitalization, medication, the treatments. But this movie is about McMurphy. You know, he it's really like he's the star of the show. Um, Dr. Fran and I briefly discussed earlier, we feel like sometimes in this movie, other characters were even less um, developed. Like even Ratchet, who, you know, in the prequel show, we learn all of this history, all of these things about Ratchet. But then when you get to the movie, it's kind of like, oh, wait, like we don't really get to know much about Ratchet um, because McMurphy is kind of the star. Um, and so... As Dr. Fran, I think, alluded to earlier, you know, McMurphy is at the hospital because they're trying to determine if he has a mental illness or if he's, in fact, feigning or kind of faking symptoms of mental illness to get out of the hard labor at the prison farm. Um, You know, probably don't blame him. Prison farms don't sound great. Um, And so... In psychology, we have a term called malingering, um, which would be uh, what we expect the psychiatrist at the hospital were trying to determine. Is McMurphy malingering or does he have symptoms of mental illness? Um, And so what malingering is, is a falsification or an exaggeration of illness. And this can be physical or mental um, symptoms. We see it both ways, actually. Um, And usually malingering is done to gain external benefits. So such as avoiding work or responsibility, um, seeking drugs or medications, trying to avoid getting in trouble with the law or having some benefit in a trial, um, various secondary gain, what we call, but basically benefits that the individual would gain um, from faking or feigning these symptoms. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times the common, a common example of this is individuals feigning to get like workers' compensation, or um, I think in media we probably see it a lot, feigning a mental illness to get um, an insanity defense. Um, so those are kind of some of the examples we might see malingering come into play. It is not a psychiatric illness based on our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental diseases, but it is something that individuals in the psychiatric field pay a lot of attention to because obviously we want to know, does this individual actually have a mental condition before we give them psychiatric medication or, you know, a course of therapy, or is there something else going on that's driving this behavior? Um, so the DSM-5 does have some indi- some guidelines for things we might want to pay attention to that could give us a signal, signal that malingering might be going on. Um, so we want to know the context of the presentation. I think this is like a big red flag for McMurphy because (laughs) he basically, they say right up front, there's concerns that you might be here because you want to get out of your work detail. So that's kind of like red flag number one of like the context that this behavior is going on in. Does it, is there some secondary gain for these symptoms? Also want to pay attention to if there's a discrepancy between what the individual claims their stress or disability is and what people actually can see. So maybe someone's claiming that they have all these issues and these different things going on, but then functionally 
they're behaving fairly normally. They're able to kind of do all the things that they need to do. So there's some mismatch mismatch between what they're saying and what people are observing or seeing. And I want to just add in with McMurphy, what's interesting is whatever symptoms that he was maybe feigning or malingering at the farm, we don't actually, we're not privy to that. And we don't see him like necessarily faking symptoms while in the hospital. It seems like he's pretty much just kind of acting like himself. Um, you know, like we did see in Ratchet actually when Edmund first arrives to say uh, to Lucia Hospital, and he is perhaps malingering symptoms of psychosis or schizophrenia. Um, so that might be a good example of malingering. But we don't necessarily see that, or we're not really aware of what these kind of symptoms are to kind of know that discrepancy for McMurphy. True. Yeah, that's a good point. The other two things we will look out for is lack of compliance with the evaluation, the treatment, or follow-up care. We do see that a little bit with McMurphy. I mean, he's mm-hmm. fairly like a I don't know if I'd describe him as agreeable, but he is participatory, at least with yeah. Dr. Spivey. Spivey. Um, he's participatory <laughs> with the evaluation, but obviously not with treatment. But is that because he doesn't agree with it or because Nurse Ratchet is, you know, they're having this power struggle? Yeah. And then the last thing that can be a correlate of malingering is presence of antisocial personality disorder. Um, so that's kind <laughs> of a big one. And we'll maybe come back at the end of our summary of McMurphy to talk about whether we think ASPD or antisocial personality disorder might fit for him. I think that that might be a good place to kind of listen to the first interaction between McMurphy and the psychiatrist about like why he's here and what they're going to do. And that can kind of help guide us as we start to think about like what might really be going on with him and if he's malingering. Randall Patrick McMurphy, 38 years old. What can you tell me about uh, why you've been sent over here? Well, I don't know. What's it say there? Mind if I smoke? No, go right ahead. Well, it um, says several things here. Said you've been belligerent. Talked when unauthorized. Been resentful in attitude toward work in general, that you're lazy. Chewing gum in class. Well, the real reason that you've been sent over here is because they wanted you to be evaluated. Yeah. To determine whether or not you're mentally ill. This Uh is the real reason. To be honest with you, McMurphy, what it says here is that they think, they think you've been faking it in order to get out of your work detail. I think one thing for this clip, we won't get too much into this character, but I think the doctor here actually does a nice job of trying to ask like open-ended questions. He's not judgmental. He's really just trying to listen, even though we hear um, McMurphy say some kind of, uh, you know, disturbing things about the statutory rape Mm -hmm. charge. Of course, it's true that you went in for statutory rape. That's true, is it not, uh, this time? Absolutely true. But, Doc, she was 15 years old, going on 35, Doc, and uh, she told me she was 18, and she was uh, very willing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I practically had to take to sewing my pants shut. But he remains very neutral and just kind of responds. So I would just kind of want to give a plug for (laughs) the director here that, you know, I think he does a decent job of trying to work with an individual that could be malingering or could have some other co-occurring mental conditions going on. 
Very true. And I also like his approach. He starts off very open-ended, but then he kind of, as he's starting to read McMurphy, he gets a little more direct. And he's like, well, this is what it says, you know, because McMurphy's being very elusive, not wanting to answer his questions about why he might be here. When he does, he gives a very kind of like profane and glib response. Well, as near as I can figure out, it's because I uh, uh, fight and fuck too much. You know, and so I kind of applaud that approach too, being a little more direct to see how McMurphy is going to respond. And, you know, we even hear him ask, like, so do you, like, so McMurphy, like, do you think anything is wrong with your mind? And he says no, which might be already one of our first clues, you know, uh, either really poor insight or maybe he really doesn't think anything's wrong. (laughs) Not a thing, Doc. I'm a goddamn marvel of modern science. Yeah, and so they kind of agree that he's going to go through some evaluation. So let's like flash forward. And a few weeks later, Mm -hmm. he has the director there again and then a team of psychiatrists, which first of all, I was like, who are these people? They just like pop in. I thought it was just the two of them in the session. And then all of a sudden, there's these other men in the room like giving their opinion. (laughs) So that was just a side note um, that I found a little surprising. (laughs) Yeah, I was also confused. I would like looked away for a second. I'm like, wait, did I miss something? But no, they were just all of a sudden in there and it was really confusing. <laughs> Let's listen to what they have to say about McMurphy. Well, you know, I've uh, been observing you here now for the last four weeks and I don't see any evidence of mental illness at all. And I think that you've been trying to put us on all this time. You know, what do you want me to do? You know. You know what I mean? Is that it? Is that crazy enough for you? Want me to take a shit on the floor? (laughs) Christ. So they seem to come to the conclusion that they don't see anything mentally wrong with McMurphy, but I would say he doesn't seem very satisfied with their conclusions. No, I agree. And it's interesting because at first they're all just saying, like, we don't see anything mentally wrong. There's no indication of mental illness. They all seem to be on the same page. Um, And then uh, McMurphy actually becomes upset by this. And he's like, I'm going to show these guys who's nuts, which is, you know, also just like an inappropriate thing to to say about people with mental illness and also kind of shows a little bit more about McMurphy's actual motivations (laughs) and his level of consciousness. But what I mean is more like being purposeful about his actions and like what he's doing and kind of coming across as much more manipulative. And impulsive. Impulsive, yeah, too. And what does he do, Dr. Fran, to show them all that he's quote-unquote nuts? Well, he escapes, which this is the easiest hospital I've ever seen to escape from. Like, they're just playing, ba- the orderlies are just playing basketball. They're not paying attention. Somehow they don't hear yeah. that an individual is climbing the fence. He also gets over the fence that's allegedly has barbed wire by just, like, sticking his hands in, like, putting his hands all over the barbed wire and just jumping over. It just, I thought that scene was just ridiculous. It is a ridiculous scene. And then it gets even a little more outlandish because basically what he does is he kidnaps the, you know, his fellow patients using the facility bus. Hey, what the hell is going on here? Um, takes them to some wharf and basically takes them on a fishing expedition on a boat. Uh, they're pre- they all pretend to be doctors, which that scene was kind of funny when they're all saying, like, Dr. Whoever, Dr. Whoever. I did laugh at that. Who are you? Uh, we're from the uh, state mental institution. Uh, this is Dr. Cheswick, Dr. Tabor, Dr. Fredrickson, Dr. Scanlon, famous Dr. Scanlon, Mr. Harding, Dr. Bibbitt. Dr. Martini and uh, Dr. Seafell. How about you? Who are you? Oh, I'm Dr. McMurphy, R.P. McMurphy. 
but you know then they're all on this boat they do eventually get caught you know rightfully so luckily i thought something horrible was going to happen on this field trip but luckily they're all okay um and they get caught and they go back to the hospital um so then the psychiatrist reconvene to figure out like okay well what's going on with mcmurphy what should we do with him and just a side note, like field trips, like literally what would they, they would call field trips are common at some yes. of these psychiatric inpatient hospitals. Like it's not uncommon to take them and do some of these things, but not in the way no. that McMurphy does it. Um, and so it's just very, so many things could have gone wrong. Um, yes, luckily, so nothing does go wrong. They make it back safely all in one piece. But anyway, just beside the point. Yeah. But yeah, so they reevaluate him. And again, we're kind of seeing like McMurphy's, what struck strikes me is he has the chance to escape. Yeah, he he climbs the fence, and then instead of escaping, he's trying to prove that he's, quote, crazy, yeah. um, which really ends up backfiring. Because what happens in this meeting, um, you know, kind of ends up taking a turn for him. Um, so let's take a listen to what they think about what's going on with McMurphy at this point. I think he's dangerous. He's not crazy, but he's dangerous. You don't think he's crazy? No, he's not crazy. Dr. Sanji? I don't think he's overly psychotic, but I still think he's quite sick. You think he's dangerous? Absolutely so. Well, John, what do you want to do with him? Well, I think we've had our turn. I'd like to send him back to the uh, work farm, frankly. Is there anybody uh, that you have of, uh, on your staff that could uh, relate to him, maybe understand him, help him out with some of these problems? Well, the funny thing is that the person that he's the closest to is the one he dislikes the most. Oh, <laughs> well, sure. That's you, Mildred. Well, gentlemen, in my opinion, if we send him back to Pendleton or we send him up to Disturbed, it's just one more way of passing on our problem to somebody else. You know, we don't like to do that. So I'd like to keep him on the ward. I think we can help him. I think this is a perfect scene here where it kind of shows and almost like foreshadows what's to come with McMurphy. So basically, they continue to decide that they do not believe that he's psychotic, um, but they do make this differentiation like, you know, he's not psychotic, but he is sick, and we do think he's dangerous. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting in the scene, they also say like, oh, the person that he's most similar to, and they say that that's Mildred. Um, and I was wondering like what they find so similar. Maybe it's because they are both like, you know, vying for power, you know, in this like dynamic. But I thought that that was kind of interesting. I don't know what you thought about that, Dr. Fran. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. Again, I thought some of the character development was a little bit weak, even with Nurse Ratchet, even though she's, we'll get to her in a minute, but she's known as like this very famous character from this film. But mm-hmm. I was kind of taken aback by that comment. I was like, I guess they interact a lot, but I wouldn't call them close. <laughs> <laughs> or similar. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could see some, yes, yeah, so, some overlap with their, they both are vying for power and authority. Um, although she has some, genuine power and authority whereas <laughs> McMurphy should not <laughs> yeah that's very true um, and I think interestingly they then defer to her like what does she think should be t- done they're trying to decide like will he stay at the hospital will he be sent back to the prison farm um, and she interestingly says like I don't think we should like pass our problems on to someone else like if we can keep him we should keep him here and help him and so she decides or kind of gives her recommendation to keep him at the hospital on the ward and that's what they decide to do which 
on a surface seems like it makes sense, right? Yeah. Like we don't want to just kind of pass him from place to place if we can treat him. Like the content or like the words that she says are like nice and make sense. And I would hope individuals would think that. But we're pretty sure there's something more nefarious going on. And she just wants to keep him so they can continue this battle for power, which is very unfortunate and doesn't turn out well for either of them. Exactly. And honestly, it kind of goes back to, I think, the trend and the quote unquote treatment that we see here at this hospital is, again, it's a form of punishment. Because what Nurse Ratchet knows is that they will be able to keep him at the hospital until they deem him stable and not dangerous, whereas he only had 68 days left if he were to serve out his time on the prison farm. McMurphy is not aware of that. He thinks he'll be able to serve the 68 days in the hospital in a much more comfortable, not doing farm labor work, and then be released. Um, let's listen to when he figures out that this is not the case. I'll be seeing you on the outside, you know what I mean? By the time you get out of here, don't be too old to even get it up. 68 days, buddy. 68 days. What the fuck you talking about 68 days? That's in jail, sucker. You still don't know where you at, dude. Yeah, where am I at, Washington? With us, baby. You're with us. And you're going to stay with us until we let you go. So we hear in this scene that McMurphy, you know, he gets very angry. He kind of, and later on he's even asking, like, why did no one tell me that you could keep me here until you're ready to turn me loose? I'd like to know why none of the guys never told me that you, Miss Ratchet, and the doctors could keep me here till you're good and ready to turn me loose. Um, and this is where he discovers the difference about some individuals being there voluntarily versus others like himself being committed. Um, and then he kind of throws, he shows this whole big scene in the group therapy scene where he's screaming at all of them, like, you guys are not crazy. Like, what's wrong with you all? Like, none of us are crazy. Um, and I think that this is leading to one of the bigger, and I feel like the climax really of the whole movie. Yeah, this was where shit hit the fan. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so to speak, <laughs> and also just like literally a disaster. So um, McMurphy invites, I guess, like his maybe girlfriend or some woman that he's involved with that we see on the boat, which I hope is not the 15-year-old. So in the book, she is a prostitute, I believe. And so I don't know if that's alluded to, but in the book I was reading, um, she's a prostitute. And I was also having the same thought. I was like, please tell me this is not the 15-year-old um, that he had had statutory rape charges for. That's what I was thinking. Um, okay, so in the book, she may be a sex worker. We see her in the film as more of like someone who is a friend or girlfriend of McMurphy's. Um, and she shows up with a friend and alcohol. They bribe one of the orderlies working the night shift and basically throw a, a rager, a party, a very not smart, ill-advised party. Yeah, there were so many things, again, that could have gone wrong. And things did go wrong, but they could have gone way worse. I mean, Dr. Oh, yeah. Sam and I were talking about, you've got individuals who are on medication. You don't know what the contraindication of alcohol mixed with these no. things could be. Also, individuals that um, we do know that alcohol can, you know, exacerbate or kind of um, can, you know, interact poorly with certain mental health conditions. So just like so many things that could have gone wrong. No. Um, but I guess they enjoy, I guess they enjoy themselves. They do until the morning. So then, you know, the rest of the staff shows up, including Nurse Ratchet. They, again, you know, as Dr. Fran has mentioned previously, the orderlies are really, like, kind of grabbing at, pushing. Like, they're collecting all of the individuals to make sure no one is missing. Um, and then, unfortunately, they notice that Billy is missing. So they go on a large search. 
and they do find Billy. Yeah, and this whole scene is really sad because I think Billy is honestly one of the most sympathetic characters. He seems very sweet, seems more innocent, has this kind of like scared child vibe because he's really scared of his mom and therefore Nurse Ratchet because they're old friends. Mm. Um, And so unfortunately, he gets incredibly shamed by Nurse Ratchet and, you know, really made to feel really horrible. And she threatens to call his mom and tell her all the things he did. We don't know the whole backstory, but clearly something odd going on in the relationship between Billy and his mom. Mm -hmm. And then he goes um, to the office and ends up killing himself because presumably he's so scared and shamed about what happened. Yes, this scene really upset me because, you know, Nurse Ratchet, she's just there with her icy glare. She's like angry at everyone. Um, but as soon as she finds that Billy, you know, had sex with this woman, um, she just starts like berating him, shaming him, threatening him. Um, and I agree with Dr. Fran. Like I felt Billy, you know, we know a little bit about his history that he has had um, past suicidal attempts. He does seem depressed and anxious. You know, even when he's asked to escape with McMurphy, he's very timid and afraid and he says he's not ready right so he really is looking for support and still wanting to grow and get treatment and so I feel like to take you know just to respond to any individual that way is obviously inappropriate Um, but then someone who is very vulnerable and that you are tasked with caring for um, and to just shame them and make them you know basically break him down so that he feels like he is so hopeless um, to then go and take his own life I felt like it was just a really really sad scene yeah absolutely and then other negative consequences of this overnight um so mcmurphy gets so upset about what happens to billy that he attacks nurse ratchet and tries to kill her um which obviously is not not appropriate not okay in that context but she then retaliates presumably by giving him a lobotomy yes so our friend the lobotomy is back mcmurphy is lobotomized (laughs) um and then you know the ending, you know, spoiler alert, but this movie, again, is 45 years old. So if you don't know this, I mean, Dr. Fran and I didn't, but now we do. Basically what happens is that the Native American gentleman who is McMurphy's friend sees him come back after he's lobotomized and pretty much in a vegetative, like, unresponsive state. He mothers him with a pillow and then escapes from the hospital. So, you know, things obviously did not end well for McMurphy. Um, and Nurse Ratchet, we later see, has like a neck brace on, but she's still kind of just, you know, in charge of the hospital ward. Um, but, uh, you know, overall, like for a movie that had like some like comedy and all that, like a pretty tragic ending for a lot of the characters. Yeah, for almost all the characters. And I think you could argue maybe that Chief by escaping has like the most positive ending, but, you know, where is he going and, yeah. you know, what's going to happen to him? Like, we just don't know. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that like it does not end well necessarily for anyone in the no. film. And if we take a step back, so we know McMurphy is dead, um, but if we take a step back and we try to think about like, okay, was he malingering? Does he have any diagnosis? Like, what do we think? Dr. Fran and I have talked about this, and it is a diagnosis that you have heard us talk about before in previous episodes, including you um, and Silence of the Lambs. Um, But we think that if anything, and again, based on the context in which we see McMurphy, that the most likely diagnosis would be antisocial personality disorder. So with McMurphy, we do see, you know, that he does often try to exploit or manipulate others, right, for his own, like, gains and purposes. He does seem to have, like, a lack of concern or regret or remorse about, like, other people for the most part. We see him sometimes having some almost, like, um, connection with some of the other patients, um, but again that's not so well developed he has this impulsivity he definitely has an inability to control his anger that's one of the things I feel like we see most often with him are these like bouts of aggression and violence when he's angry 
Um, and then I think most importantly with McMurphy, we do see a pattern of like kind of repeatedly breaking the law. You know, I think he had like five assault charges, the statutory rape charge, um, and this just like no regard for consequences, like whether it be the law or the consequences at the hospital he finds himself in. And a disregard for authority. I mean, I think oh, yes. especially having worked with kids in the past, this is what come to mind. It was almost like a kid with, we won't get into it, but op- oppositional defiant disorder <laughs> or something where he just like cannot handle authority and is always pushing boundaries and, you know, just for the sake of it almost, but mm-hmm. just wants to constantly kind of push against that authority, which in the film is Nurse Ratchet. Um, yeah. So we definitely see rule breaking and also just this complete disregard for the rules and for authority. For sure. That's like the whole arc, really, of McMurphy in the movie, I feel like. So definitely. Um, So that's what we would, you know, if we were to kind of give our say. And again, we've talked a bit about this in the forensic episodes, that having a diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder doesn't mean that he might find himself in an acute setting necessarily, right? Because we've talked about like the... Um, the different things that might lead to that. So I think that was part of what they were trying to decide and that they didn't find him to have like psychotic symptoms, but did find him to be dangerous. And we would agree with that. He does seem, you know, based on his history and even just like kind of the outbursts we see that he does have um, a history of being violent and dangerous. And, you know, still that pattern was continuing at the present time in the hospital. I do think there you that they have to be careful, though, because just because someone has a history of violence, um, you know, in a criminal capacity doesn't necessarily mean that they have the authority to institutionalize that individual um, in a mental health institution. So, um, you know, I think you're right, Dr. Brand. I think what you're alluding to is that idea that we heard about with Dr. Adam, right, where it's like kind of do they know when like a when the crime or like a violent act is being committed, like the difference from right and wrong and kind of that like rational thought. So I think that that's where McMurphy differs, um, because when he is committing violence or these crimes, like he's he is in his like, quote unquote, right state of mind. He might not be deemed legally or criminally insane. Yeah, luckily we didn't have to make a decision on that. No, we are not those doctors or Nurse Ratched. And speaking of Nurse Ratched, we're only going to touch on her briefly because we do have a whole session devoted to the prequel on Nurse Ratched. Um, but we want to note that in this film, she is named the fifth greatest villain in film history by the American Film Institute um, from 2003. And I think Dr. Fran and I both were expecting a more... I don't know, like, heinous villain? Like, after seeing the show and after hearing that she's one of the most villainous villains. Um, so, you know, I think one of the important things I want to touch on is that there is a um, pattern of showing nurses commonly very negatively on screen. So being scary, you know, there are there are a couple, like, kind of infamous um fictional nurses that are bad or villainous characters and I think that part of what can make them so scary on the screen is because it goes against our expectations of someone who is supposed to be compassionate and healing and caring when we when they're depicted as being more cruel and like you know enacting harm versus healing and I think that's what can make them so villainous or so scary and I think that's the case with Nurse Ratched. And I think couple that with what you had done a little bit of research and seen some readings about kind of the gender and how yes. that adds an extra element of like one, nurses are more stereotypically women um, and we more stereotypically expect women to be compassionate and warm and Nurse Ratchet just isn't like that. And so it's some like disconnect between what we're expecting from her character and what we actually see that creates this kind of like unsettling or kind of like more um, concern about her character than maybe if she had been a male nurse. 
Yes, there's a lot of speculation that if Nurse Ratchet had been male, that he wouldn't have been as scary. And interestingly, they talked about in the casting of Louise Fletcher for Nurse Ratchet that one of the reasons why she was cast is because she does have such a, I think they use the word angelic look, that, you know, she's like very calming, very pleasant to look at. She kind of like exudes like just kind of this like on the surface pleasantness. Um, so then to have a character that was like, you know, almost like, you know, like again, like more stereotypically not like a stereotypical male where there might be like violence and aggression and that's what could be scary, but more this like femininity and then being very controlling and not really caring about the patients. And then as we saw in the case of Billy, like really like demoralizing and being cruel towards him. You know, Billy, what worries me is how your mother is going to take this. Um, um, well, you, you, you don't, don't have to t- 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 tell her, Miss Ratchet. I don't have to tell her. Your mother and I are old friends. You know that. Um, please n- 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 don't t- t- tell my mother. M- don't you think m- you should have thought of that before you took that woman in that room? Yeah, so definitely not a good portrayal of someone who works in this setting and particularly for a nurse. I think, unfortunately, like Dr. Sam was alluding to, um, the field of nurses may also have a similar negative portrayal sometimes in the media as do like psychiatrists or psychologists or mental health providers um, and definitely does not help by perpetuating negative um, stereotypes about those professions. Very true. And I know that the one of the like nursing associations was actually very upset before the release of the show Ratchet, kind of given such a negative um, and potentially damaging portrayal of the profession. And we definitely see that in this movie as well. Um, I think comparing it to the show is interesting because I thought we would learn more about Nurse Ratchet in the film, um, but we really don't, which I could see now why like Ryan Murphy and the show creators of Ratchet took a lot of liberties with that because they could really build almost any background or any backstory for her. I think that the nurse ratchet we see in the tv show is much more openly um kind of much more open to like committing crimes and acts of violence at least compared to the one we saw in the film i don't know what you think about that dr fran yeah absolutely a lot of what we see in the film version of nurse ratchet is more kind of subtle or um you know more manipulation but less like overt or maybe maybe behind the scenes because again this is a jack nicholson movie maybe behind the scenes she's committing all these crimes and she's still worried about edmund and all these things like we (laughs) see in the prequel but we don't see any of that from her character development in the movie Mm -mm. and the other characters do seem afraid of her i will say that and i know dr fran and i talked about in the book apparently like the characters are much more afraid of her even other staff and the doctor seems to be afraid of her um but from what we see it's more because she is so controlling um you know and kind of seems to use various forms of punishment as we've discussed Uh, but i do think you know the characters are pretty different at least in my opinion absolutely so i think talking about nurse ratchet is a good transition into our ph don'ts this is not a safe place sorry are you gonna like keep touching me like that that guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. Oh, that's it. Great, great job, everybody. Thank you. Don't let your patients ride around on each other's shoulders on the playground. Don't let your patients escape while you're busy playing basketball. Don't allow your patients to use a facility bus as a getaway car to kidnap other patients. Don't get into fistfights or brawls with your patients. (laughs) Do not be bribed into letting your patient throw a party with booze and women. 
Don't threaten to call an adult patient's mother who is your old friend to tell on him. Don't shame and threaten a patient leading to them committing suicide. And don't let your patients smother other patients in their beds. Please. All right, Dr. Fran. So I know this was a first for both of us watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What did you think? I feel like this is a hot take, but I didn't <laughs> like it that much. <laughs> I'm like, this movie won so many awards. I need to like it more. It's about mental health, but I don't know. Maybe it's the, I'm, I know I'm giving my age away a little bit here, but maybe it's the millennial in me. I just thought it was kind of boring. It was slow. I didn't think the character development was that great. I think also just the, um, you know, I read the description of the book and the book sounded like it had a little bit maybe more depth to it, Mm -hmm. kind of more interesting. Um, For those who haven't read the book, I haven't, but it sounds like it's from the perspective of Chief or the Native American character um, and kind of through his lens and there's some kind of interesting other pieces that come into it. But yeah, I just thought the film was a little flat for me and, um, you know, again, just perpetuated some stereotypes. I felt like Um, McMurphy's character was really um, almost like idolized and just Mm -hmm. wasn't a good character and was seen to be this champion for the rights of these patients. But I think if that's the message you're trying to get across, there are other ways to do that besides with like this antisocial character that we see with Jack Nicholson's character. That's true. He could have, you know, like the character seemed to rally around him, but he maybe had more selfish um, intentions. So, yeah, I definitely see that. Um, yeah. I will say I tend to not like some older movies. And so I will say that I liked it more than I thought, you know, because this is one of those movies I've always heard about, but I was never so motivated to watch it um, because I was like, you know, kind of um, lukewarm feelings about it um but i agree that it does you know it kind of shows its age right 45 years old there are stereotypes in the way that it portrays um different like racial and ethnic groups the way that it portrays mental illness the way that it portrays gender roles um so i do agree with that um i feel like you know while it was a little bit slower i think that was more like the nature of the story but i would have liked a little more character development as well i do agree with that it was definitely all about mcmurphy and the movie um and i do get the sense that the book is different um, kind of building out more like nurse Raff and some of the other characters. So now, for our DSM-5, diagnosing shows and movies, how would you rate One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in terms of, like, kind of, like, the accuracy of the portrayal of the themes that we've talked about today? This is really hard, actually. I'm leaning towards surprisingly, like, not a horrible rating. Like, maybe a a two or a three? Um, And I'm saying that, one, because I like knowing that it was filmed in an actual inpatient facility. So, like, the setting, especially as compared to some of the other movies and films we've talked about that portray this type of environment, is a lot more accurate. I would also say the portrayal of some of the patients, like, weren't at least incredibly inaccurate to the extent that we've seen in some of the other movies we've covered, especially Mm -hmm. in the inpatient facility. Um, I think where it loses points is the therapy portrayal Mm -hmm. um, and Nurse Ratchet and some of the other individuals that work in the hospital settings although again if we're taking the context of the time frame into Mm -hmm. account maybe this wouldn't have been as inaccurate as it obviously would be nowadays so i would go with the three okay you know i'm also just like you actually i'm like teetering like two and three so when you said that i like kind of (laughs) smiled because i agree i think you know for the time the actual like use of a inpatient psychiatric hospital um you know we've talked about like the medication group therapy and ect those are appropriate um treatments in that setting i just had qualms with the way that they were administered um and we talked about the patient rights issues um and i you know 
interestingly, for it being a psychiatric, um, like a movie about psychiatric hospital is hospital, um, we don't really get a lot of mental illness. So like, I don't know about you, but for some of the characters, we don't really know like what all their symptoms are or even their diagnoses. And as we talked about with McMurphy, he doesn't have like psychosis or other kind of severe mental illness, maybe has antisocial personality disorder, which that portrayal, you know, I thought was okay. Um, and considering it's supposed to be based in the 60s, I'll, I'll go with you on the three, I think. Yeah, we're feeling very favorable today with our ratings. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. Two or three. <laughs> I can't go have so Dr. Ask me again Fran tomorrow. Will... It might be different. Yeah, Dr. Fran will fire me. <laughs> I would ideally say no 2.5. I know. <laughs> I know. I would probably say the same thing, but alas. <laughs> well, session is over for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website for resources. You can go down the rabbit hole that Dr. Sam and I did on the history of inpatient hospitals. We'll put some links to that and some other things that we talked about and some new terms for this episode. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this movie, whether you thought it was good like Dr. Sam or if you were just not a fan like I was. Um, We'd also love to hear what questions you have about psychology and what movies or TV shows you want us to put on our couch and break down next. Thank you so much for those of you that follow us on social media. If you don't, please find and follow us. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And for those of you that recently participated in our poll, we'll have the results of that soon about what's going to be on our couch next. So as always, please subscribe, rate, and review. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster Don. <laughs>